This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Goldfarb Library at Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast dedicated to making sense of contemporary problems by activating writing from the past. We believe you can only notice what's exceptional and unprecedented in the present if you take a hard look at what's gone before. You could say we look backward to see into the future. Over the next half hour, we'll explore a couple of works in depth and conclude by pointing you towards further reading on the topic. Recall this book is hosted today by Elizabeth Ferry, an anthropologist now writing about gold and Colombian and Mexican mining and finance, and by me, John Plotz, a professor of Victorian literature currently writing a history of science fiction and fantasy. Today, we're joined by media historian Lisa Gittleman as we explore old new media. Our conversation will cover the difference between unique artworks and those destined for mass circulation, and we'll also ask which old media innovations were most comparable when first introduced to new arrivals like Twitter and blockchain. We'll also end with recommendations for further reading, and we will also debate whether Kipling was paying a compliment to the newest technology of his day when he compared radio to a delirious dying man psychically channeling Keats's Eve of St. Agnes. So welcome to Recall This Book. So there's a line from We Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who that I often think about. Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. So because I'm the kind of nerd who studies the ways that women novel readers in the 19th century were depicted as sex-addicted zombies and the ways that people feared moviegoers in the early 20th century were going to be robbed of their free will by the flickering power of the screen, that quote about new and old bosses helps me think about the way that some of our contemporary fear of the internet age, the age of electronic 
transmission gets amplified when we look back into the past. How much of what we fear in today's changed forms of attention, of reading, of watching, of texting, falls into the category of here comes the new media revolution, same as the old media revolution? And how much of it is just genuinely new? Are we heading towards or have we already entered a cognitive upheaval that is caused by the way that big data streams all around us now and carries us off into parts unknown? Today's authors are Walter Benjamin and Rudyard Kipling, both from the beginning of the 20th century, an unlikely pairing, but as the old jingle said, they may be two great tastes that taste great together. So, so to explore that set of questions around old and new media, we are very lucky to have Lisa Gittleman join us today. She is a professor of media studies at NYU and the author of numerous works in the field of media studies, including two books that form a perfect introdu introduction to this topic. From 2006, Always Already New, Media History and the Data of Culture, and in 2014, Paper Knowledge Towards a Media Histi History of Documents paper knowledge towards a media history of documents. Lisa, welcome to this Public Books podcast. Well, it's a delight to be here. Thanks a lot, John. So in a more perfect world, I actually think we could just devote ourselves to exploring and reading aloud from Lisa's own writing on this topic. But as you know, the format of this podcast asks its hosts and its guests to choose texts from the past that seem to shed a sideways light on our own present situation. The idea is to try to shake up the terms of present debate by considering how the topic, in this case, what is a new media and how different is it from old media, was approached in earlier times when a different version of this question came up. So, Lisa, you brought with you today a, a timeless essay by Walter Benjamin, timeless but first published in German in 1935, uh, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And for those of you following along at home, you will find a link to Harry Zone's English translation of the essay on our website. Lisa, can I ask you to just tell us a bit about the essay and why you chose to discuss it? Sure. Um, so this is a, a classic essay. Um, uh, I think um, if you shook awake any media studies major the world over in the middle of the night and said Benjamin to them, they would, uh, without thinking, um, draw something from this essay and whisper back to you, Aura, A-U-R-A. Yeah, and um, if you said Benjamin to you, they would say, no, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, uh, somehow we, t we say it that way. But anyway, it's a classic essay. It was written by Benjamin in the 1930s, as you said. He, is a, he was a, a German Jew in exile in Paris under, you know, kind of extreme uh, duress um, at a moment uh, of great, you know, kind of unknown in the world, um, both personally and politically. Very unsettled times um, uh, or uncertain times. And this uh, was a, a political condition, a personal condition, as well as something having to do with media, because Benjamin was really kind of clocking in new uh, media of um, reproduction, textual reproduction and image reproduction. Um, the essay has a lot of different moving parts to it. It's complex. Uh, there are lots of pieces. Uh, in addition to this word aura that comes up importantly, it's an essay that focuses on the, the what Benjamin is the kind of power, and in this case, positive power of photography um, as a new art form and uh, cinema uh, as a new kind of mass art form as well. Um, so I thought it was very appropriate because it's Benjamin thinking about new media um, uh, at a moment when the question of media seemed 
important in yeah. lots of different ways. That's that's great, Lisa. Can I ask? I mean, it's totally to put you on the spot, and you don't have to have an answer on this. But you mentioned photography and film or the moving picture as the two new ones. Can you I, I sort of position those two for us in terms of how what Benjamin is doing with putting photography and and which actually isn't that new in 1935, but like photography and film, which is pretty new. Pretty uh, new, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> sure. Um, so uh, he, Benjamin sort of picks up photography uh, as a contrast to painting or to the original graphic arts. Um, and that's where the idea of the aura comes in. A painting has this uniqueness, an aura, um, a presence, if you like, um, uh, a kind of autographic essence that photography doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to say which is the original photograph. Um, it, we seem to be in a completely different domain when we get to photography, and, and Benjamin wants to theorize that. He wants to see its kind of political ramifications in terms of a cultural politics, but also in terms of some, you know, kind of utopian future for uh, on a kind of proletarian uh good place to live. Um, and cinema comes in as kind of the second act there, um, because I think Benjamin, again, in this essay is quite optimistic. Um, he's looking at Soviet cinema and seeing cinema as a way, first, that workers can represent themselves, um, that, that you know, sort of every man can be in film the way Soviet cinema was then um, sort of charting a course. But he also thought about film as a kind of um, training ground for our modern existence, right? That it was a training in the op the apparatus of modernity um, in some way, if used correctly, right? If, if used, you know, in the ways that his exploration of photography seemed to suggest new, new you know, kind of mass democratic forms might have. If you had to think about the new forms right now that lined up with photography and film the way Benjamin is? Do, do things come to mind for you as one of them works like the way Benjamin is saying photography did and one of them is working the way he said film is? Uh, well, I mean, we hear the same things about um, digital media, right? In a way, when you get to a place when you're saying, well, what's the original of a photograph? You're talking about the memescape. Um, you we're now in the place of absolute non-originals. And, and we have to ask, you know, is there a real cultural politics to that? Is it the one that Benjamin ex except, expected? Uh, I'm not so sure. Um, uh, there are other parts in this essay where he dwells on, um, again, the, the worker being able to represent themselves in cinema, but even in, in print, in newspapers, that everybody can write a letter to the editor instead of um, authorship being this sort of sacrosanct domain. Yeah. And, and there, I think, all of our you know contemporary digital media have really played a role in making us all authors. Yeah. Um, and I think in the 1930s, that was still a kind of radical realization that we were reaching a place where we could all be authors instead of just all be audience. Yeah, actually, Elizabeth, I was wondering, as an anthropologist, if you had thoughts about that funny thing in Benjamin where he actually seems to be complaining because people have too much access to the means of production. You know, that is that now everyone can be an author and therefore the category of author. I'm not sure he uses the word debased, but he certainly uses the notion of like something like the authority of authorship being undermined. And, and I feel like nowadays we often hear that touted as the great democratic equalizer of you know, everybody can have their own YouTube channel. So did, did you have a did you have a take on that, Elizabeth? Yeah, John. So um, I agree. So in this in this passage that you're talking about, he begins by saying that in for centuries, a small number of writers were confronted by many thousands of readers, but that now the distinction between author and public 
uh, is becoming smaller and smaller and is, he says, about to lose its basic character. And clearly um, that distinction is um, way smaller than it was even then. It's that, that process has gone way farther. But I also think there is a kind of ambivalence in the passage about the tension between the democratization of the means of cultural production and the decline of expertise. And it's kind of interesting since he's himself a writer, so maybe that's he has a certain um, sense of proprietariness. But it also seems connected to what you were saying before, Lisa, about the sort of mood of the text. I totally agree that this is basically a very optimistic text and a, and a call to pay attention to the positive possibilities of these changes in um, mechanical reproduction. But there's also some ambivalence earlier as well. Um, so for instance, when he introduces the term aura, he says that which withers in the age of mechanical reproduction is the aura of the work of art. Um, and you know, goes on to talk about the shattering of tradition. So, so when, a, when an object um, or a work of art is, was traditionally unique and um, authentic and made authentic by its context, then it had this aura and that aura uh, was the aura of tradition. So the kind of ripping away from that aura constitutes, he says, a tremendous shattering of tradition which is the obverse of the contemporary crisis and renewal of mankind. So, Elizabeth, are you saying then that the, we haven't come that far from 2018, that the, same, that the same forms of anxiety around new media and the notion of, like, purely falsified photographs, as Lisa was saying, or, you know, purely random YouTube where, you know, everybody's dog has their own YouTube channel, that that same fear of loss of authenticity, that fear that I think Marx talked about of all that is solid melting into air, it just feels it just feels like a, uh, a repetition compulsion. Hmm. Well, as usual, I want to say yes and no. Um, it seems to me. Let me say it this way. I, I like the method that Benjamin and other people use of sort of thinking about one particular, in this case, technological change, and then what are its cultural and social ramifications. I find that, you know, very compelling. Obviously, I'm not unique in finding, finding it so. Um, so based on that method, you would, you would then assume that these are different changes, different, different technologies will have different kinds of effects. And I sign on to that idea, more or less. Um, I think the anxiety surrounding um, surrounding these changes is a lot more enduring than we might think. Um, you talked about this before, John, about the you know nineteenth century women readers of novels were you know uh, uh, sex crazed maniacs or whatever it was you said. And that I recently read an article about. Um, a sort of um, scare in the early 90s uh, that was expressed in a whole bunch of different news stories about women who became addicted to the internet or addicted to their computers and left their marriages and neglected their children. So that seems really similar. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a way in which without even realizing it, we've sort of let authenticity go. Um, and Benjamin put it 
in in again seeing the contrast between the original work of visual art and the photograph, put it in terms of the kind of cultic presence of the artwork, and and that that cult presence was partly, as you say, made out of context, the fact that so few people would ever be able to see it or even know what it looked like. Um, and that we've let go in ways that I think we don't even acknowledge day to day. It's not part of our framing understanding of what we're doing now, that that's gone. Actually, Lisa, can I jump in on that? You mentioned uh, to me in conversation uh, a distinction between the autographic, meaning the kind of authentically primary place and time located artwork versus the allographic, meaning the artwork whose identity is actually bound up in reproduction, replication. So as somebody who studies 19th century novels, that's all about the allographic quality. So did I just hear you say that where we are now is that we don't treat the autographic as having any um, primary aesthetic status at all, that it's all allographic all the time? Well, no, I think we've we've tipped certainly, um, yeah. but we still cherish you know things from the the, the hand of the author, the hand of the artist. Um, we, we live in a celebrity culture, and that means you know sort of association right. possessions are still valuable to us. We right. haven't trashed you know people that. still pay thirty thousand um, dollars to be with Britney Spears just before she goes on, like to be in the room where it happens. True, or, and you can have yeah. a blockbuster museum show now that will make you know a rare painting accessible to millions. We're still talking about the. The notion that the presence... Yeah, it's a handy um, distinction from Nelson Goodman about artworks that depend upon the autographic original and, and art forms um, that are more allographic. So um, think about a piece of music. It's not like the piece of music exists in its essential essence someplace. It has to be in its reproductions. So it has a whole career. And we could ask all kinds of things about the conditions of the reproduction of pieces of music um, to learn more about the pieces of music. Um, this is that old joke, um, you know, uh, so the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre Museum in Paris. Where is Hamlet? Yeah. Y you know, Hamlet is everywhere, right, that its reproductions yeah. are. Yeah, that's great. Um, actually, that might be uh, a good time for us to pivot to turn to the podcast's second text, which is a short story by Rudyard Kipling. And yes, that is the same Rudyard Kipling you might remember fondly from childhood for The Jungle Book and for adventure stories like Kim. And of course, you might also remember him not so fondly for his horrifying poem from 1901, The White Man's Burden. Um, uh, so he has a complex legacy for sure. But today I thought we could look at uh, Wireless, which is a short story he first published in 1902. And you will also find it on our website. So in brief, this is a story from the very early days of radio. In fact, the first line of it is, it's a funny thing, this Marconi business. Um, and it's, it's a, it, it seems to be a story about a radio transmission, only it switches midway through from being about radio transmission, literally moves into another room to a very different kind of transmission, which is a tubercular young man, a druggist, who suddenly finds himself in a trance state channeling Keats. I don't know what to make of this wacky story, but, you know, I think you're right that it does point to um, the persistence of the aesthetic and aesthetic works in the kind of ethereal realm, both a kind of uh, subconscious, you know, um, you know the, this person is, has obviously metabolized Keats in some way. There's a really interesting doubleness in the story because in one, in some ways, radio transmission is like the transmission of the Keats poem to the consumptive 
assistant. And in some ways, it's different. So, um, yeah, there's this sense of the aesthetic ether as opposed to a kind of atmospheric ether. And, you know, the whole kind of difficulty of transmission and sort of coming through in bits and pieces is reproduced in both cases. But for the enthusiasts, the radio enthusiasts who are trying to make this connection, it said several times that, you know, okay, well, we're we're transmitting to pool, I think, um, but it could be anywhere. This is just, it happens to be to this place that we're transmitting. And then um, also it doesn't really matter what we say. Whereas in the case of the... Um, of the Keats poem, it definitely matters what is said. There's this kind of constant revision, trying to get it right. And it also matters that it's this particular consumptive guy, something, there's a sort of sense that something about the, you know, tubercular spores are like the receptors for this message. Okay, so Elizabeth, I'm going to push back on that one a little bit because I think he becomes a reception station in the same way that the radio station is ripe to receive. So ultimately, this is a, a minor plot twist, and believe me, it's not a spoiler for the story, but it turns out they never get their reception from pool that they were looking for, but they do overhear a couple of ships in the North Sea, maybe, talking to one another. And that's because their induction microphone is set up in just the right way. And at one point, uh, the narrator of the story says about the tubercular young man that he's, quote, an induced Keats. And so induced there might mean like induced in a medical trance state, but it also means induced like an inductor microphone, which I imagine is the kind of microphone we're actually talking into right now. That is that it's a microphone that can somehow capture the sounds out of the air, you know, just because of a, a quirk of configuration. I see what you're saying. I, I think you're right that there's like a convergence in the forms of transmission uh, with him as a reception station. But I still see a difference between the two modes because not only do the words really matter, but it seems to really matter that this guy has tuberculosis, as Keats did. Keats uh, died from tuberculosis. And that, you know, there's this kind of essential connection to them, uh, between the two of them, between Keats and the and the receptor, um, which goes beyond the, which isn't transferable. I, I, th I think I agree. I, I was going to sort of pick up a different thing and, and agree that it, it seems like uh, this is a story that picks up a question for the future. And to the extent that it picks up the question of the future about like the mathematical theory of communication, it's picking up that question of whether we need to think in terms of semantic content at all. Um, uh, and you know, semantic contact in this uh, content in this case is poetry. Um, I think this story also picks up a kind of neat question for the present of 1902 uh, about wireless because nobody really understood, I think, really what wireless was. Um, and I just wanted to clock in for a second um, that it really just been. 60 years or so that people had been clocking in wire fullness, mm -hmm. right? The, the, uh -huh. the world was really newly wired uh, in some way that had suddenly, I, I think suddenly 50, 60 years become uh, intuitive. Um, and uh -huh. wireless comes along and just seems like the radical unmaking um, of modernity in the name of some future modernity. Um, and, and I think that that's where some of the uncanniness of the story and the context come from. 
That's great. That actually completely goes to my future recommendation, which is the Henry James story about a telegraph operator. So I think that's a really good point about the wired and the wireless. And I actually kind of want to use that to pivot to 2018 a little bit and again ask that question of like, so what is the contemporary analogy there where we thought we understood, you know, we thought we understood the World Wide Web, but now there's suddenly Web 2.0 where there's the sort of the, the new iteration of that. Um, you know, what's the what's the equivalent for us of the thing that we clearly have to grapple with, but we, you know, we were just getting used to the last digital revolution and all of a sudden this new one comes along? Well, I'm not sure this is the best analogy, um, but I guess... Um, that the emergence of blockchain currencies that are based on blockchains is something that people feel we're hovering on the brink of a whole new way of thinking about exchange and um, the what underwrites it and that we just got used to things like credit cards and so on. I suppose that, that could work as an analogy. And so, Elizabeth, for those of us, and I'm not saying I'm one at all, but for those of us who are ignorant of the nuances of blockchain, just don't don't tell me the insides of blockchain, but tell me the takeaway for what you think is uh, significant about the implications of blockchain's kind of open, open sharing of information or however you understand it. Oh, boy, I bet I could have predicted you would ask me that. Um, so what people who are very excited about blockchain say is that um, because it is based on this idea of a distributed ledger, a sort of open ledger that everybody has equal access to and that is um, kind of immutable because of the way it's the code is set up, um, that is the past is immutable, that it um, does away with the need for, you know, banks or centralized authorities to be issuing currency and that that has all of these, you know, implications that the, its supporters think are super liberatory and its detractors think are um, potentially catastrophic. Oh, my God. So it's the ultimate allographic transactionality because everything is available, is verified precisely by it being replicated in different forms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'd probably, you know, maybe add a postscript to that. I think, you know, blockchain is, you know, we're trying to wrap our minds around it. It does depend on massive computing power, right? So it has this yes. big ecological dimension to it that people are rightly getting quite concerned about. That's really interesting because I was uh, pursuing a different chain of thought and I was thinking of it in terms of social mediation. And this could easily be because I'm the parent of teenagers, but I was thinking about that notion of uh, that what's really at stake is the um, amazing way that people build out their social networks without relying on face-to-face -face interaction. That is that we, um, of, our, of my generation anyway, we have this kind of fear of the idea of a presence that is a presence of electronic mediation. But I think that a younger generation has no fear about that. Like they take for granted that it's not a, we don't live in an age of transmission, of a kind of one to X transmission. We live in an age of an X to X interaction. 
Well, and it's an absolute publicness um, that that is in keeping with the blockchain technology. That that I mean, and yet, John, you you get, managed to get out of bed in the morning. You, you know, this doesn't sound like a utopia to me, or you, uh, you know, a very sort of positive, optimistic uh, turn. And yet, we've we've been pretty upbeat. Yeah. Well, so I actually where do you where I, do you see hope here? Well, see, to me, I mean, but everybody else thinks I'm insane. But I actually think that one of the things that's really interesting about the mediated age that we live in is that the uh, constraints of reproduction are actually enabling constraints by the following analogy, that Twitter is like haiku. I mean, I'm sure people have said this, so forgive me because I'm missing the people who pursued this argument. But of course, you can understand Twitter as just free stream of consciousness venting. I can't think of anyone who actually just vents on <laughs> Twitter, but I'm sure there must be people who do it. But, um, but, you know, but on the other hand, that limit of characters kind of feels like the haiku limit. And so you're, in other words, producing a new kind of a set of paradigms for what it means to have an aesthetic relation. Yeah, an enabling constraint. So in wireless, you know, one thing that's notable is that Kipling keeps running through different metaphors for how poetic inspiration might look like an inductive microphone. So he says, in my own brain, something crackled, like at the moment that he recognizes that this is Keats. And he's talking about his brain as if it were a radio, you know, a circuit or a magnetic, uh, a magnetic loop that's closing. Um, new met, you know. In other words, new metaphors that allow us to reconstitute an aesthetic. Lisa's looking at me with a gentle smile, like, "Oh, you poor sap! I can't <laughs> believe, I can't believe that." I mean, I guess you know, going back to Benjamin, one of the things that you know, even though this essay is quite optimistic um, uh, in many of its, uh, if ambivalent in many of its observations, um, he 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 did see, you know, with incredible keenness, um, the way that the emergence of fascism was, uh, in a sense, the kind of aestheticizing of politics. Um, and I think we we need to have you know kind of similar concerns today about our media and 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 you know centralization um, uh, and decentralization those questions of longstanding, um, but also uh, you, you know how power is mystified, aestheticized, um, uh, and the like. So that actually brings us to the final portion of this podcast: recallable books. So Lisa. What book are you going to urge our listeners to recall from the library or head off to find at their local bricks-and-mortar, cat-friendly, hippie teenager-employing-style bookstore that uh, I know you frequent? Okay. Well, I prepared something. Since we were talking about an essay, Benjamin's essay, I brought along just another essay. Great. So um, that, low stakes. Um, awesome. There is a recent essay by um, the sociologist Bruno Latour and Adam Lowe um, called The Migration of the Aura or How to Explore or the original through its facsimiles. Um, and this is an essay that um, explicitly takes up Benjamin's essay on the work of art and the age of its technological reproducibility um, and does some new things with it, um, in particular looking at digital reproductions. And what, if Benjamin is looking at photographs, what digital uh, imagery um, can do or say uh, to help us with uh, thinking about um, the same kind of questions of the present moment. Um, I should say that this essay appears in a book um, called Switching Codes that was edited by um, Thomas Barch and uh, Roderick Coover. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I'm sure we can put a link to that up on the website so that people can figure out a way to um, to access it. Thanks. And um, Elizabeth, what about you? Yeah, so I also want to um, talk about an essay called Mobile Phones and Nipoho's Prophecy, The Powers and Dangers of Flying Language. And it's written by my colleague, anthropologist uh, Janet McIntosh here at Brandeis. And she's interested in the ways people in the town of Malindi, Kenya, uh, 
text on their cell phones, and they use two different languages when they're texting, uh, English and Kigiriyama, which is a local language. Uh, they use them about different kinds of things. The English is often about things that have to do with mobility, um, youth culture, and uh, cosmopolitanism. And the, the Kigiriyama is often in um, situations that have more to do with family, respect, obligations, formality. And uh, by the same token, the English is often abbreviated in these kind of condensed forms that we, we can recognize in text. I think it's familiar to us. Whereas the Kigiriyama is always fully spelled out. Um, so there's a sort of, and, th and this really reproduces ideas that people um, have about these two languages and the kind of social um, interactions that they represent. Um, so I think it's a really good example of how there's both, you know, um, the endurance of uh, forms of social life that predated texting and the particular platform of texting and how it might change things. So I recommend it to you, and uh, it's available on our website. Awesome. Thanks, Elizabeth. And we can also put up a link to that. And I, um, I'm actually uh, going to uh, use a little bit of pride of radio and say I'm really sorry. I would love to recommend Henry James's In the Cage, but I am sort of committed instead to recommending one of the first post-H.G. Wells stories, which is E.M. Forster's 1909, The Machine Stops. And we'll have that up, uh, the text of that, in full on the website. Uh, so that brings us to the end of this uh, really uh, fascinating discussion um, and this Public Books podcast. So once again, um, Elizabeth, uh, thank you for being my co-host. And, uh, and, and Lisa Gittleman, thank you very much. Uh, delighted to have you as a guest in these inaugural few. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, we'll have you back, I hope. Okay. All right. Goodbye for now. Recall This Book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Sound editing is by Anil Tripathi in the Anthropology Department, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Matthew Schratz from the English Department. Mark Delello oversees and advises on all technological matters, and we appreciate the support of University Librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via Twitter or on our Facebook page and our website, recallthisbook.org, where you'll also find links to the text discussed today and suggestions for further reading and listening. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and to share the episode with friends via social media or whoever else you do that, including hollering out the window. Uh, for a podcast with no commercial affiliations and no budget for publicity, your kind words are the single best way, maybe the only way, to get the word out. From Recall This Book, this is John Plotz along with Elizabeth Ferry and Lisa Gittleman saying thanks for downloading or streaming this show about old new media and about Walter Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and Rudyard Kipling's story, Wireless. <laughs>